Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Canadian Story. I'm pleased to have Fred here. Fred, why don't you tell our guests about yourself, uh, what you do, where we can find you on the internet, and what you're all about. Well, um, hi, guys. Um, yes, I'm Fred Wilson. Um, uh, I'm a retired guy now, but I'm still an activist. Um, I spent my life in the uh, trade union movement, um, worked for um, most recently for Unifor, uh, Canada's largest private sector union, was part of the group that created Unifor in 2013. Um, and um, um, served as its first director of strategic planning for the first uh, three years before I took retirement. And I've been doing projects um, as a volunteer uh, with the union ever since. Um, I particularly enjoyed this. I had the immense privilege of working for the labor movement for uh, 30 years. And uh, I never, it, it always struck me that when I was being um, uh, paid to work on behalf of our members that I was always working with members who were volunteering uh, because that's the nature of the trade union movement. And so, um, um, you know, I, I can just say that when I retired, I was, uh, I was more than pleased to be able to, to become one of those volunteers. Prior to, uh, prior to uh, um, working for Unifor, I was, a, um, I was the assistant to the president of one of the predecessor unions called the Communications, Energy and Paper Workers Union. And that's where I got my start is with the CEP. Uh, and before that, its predecessor union, <laughs> the Canadian Paper Workers Union in Vancouver. And that's where um, I was born and learned my politics cut my teeth in the labor movement, working with socialist fishermen and, um, and carpenters um, and loggers. Um, and uh, then um, I went to work for the union and eventually was enticed to move to, uh, to uh, Ottawa to, be, um, uh, to work in the national office. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's my background. Um, I've, you know, I've always combined my work with the union movement with work in social movements. For 15 years, I was a volunteer member of the Council of Canadians um, on their board of directors. Um, I've been very active in civic politics back in the day. I spent many, many years in Vancouver uh, being a campaign manager for the progressive civic organization there. Um, yeah, so it's been a, a life of um, uh, a, a very rewarding um, life of engagement, politics, struggles, organizing. Um, if I uh, had to do it all over again, I would. Ah, oh, I love that, and it's interesting because I'm also a political organizer, but on the other, on the conservative side, or the, so not the most, so much the progressive side. But I, I always talk to my friends uh, when I was a staffer on the Hill, my my NDP friends, and I always say. Really, when it comes down to it, organizing is is a is a skill set. It's an art, right? It's a thing that you that you do, and that it doesn't matter what you're doing it for. There's things that are so similar that you end up having a lot of commonality with people who do that as well, and like understanding people, because really, what organizing is about is people, and particularly, and this is something that I think uh, is really important. Unions are about people fundamentally, right? It's like that is like it's about raising people up so I'd like I'd like to hear first 
why you are like because uh, we haven't had anyone uh, uh, from your perspective on the podcast yet. What is it about unions that inspires you to, like you say, never want to do anything different? Like you, you dedicated your life to this and you loved it and you, you, you're now, you know, retired and now you're so, you love it so much. You're volunteering your time. Give us some of your passion. Like, what is it about this, this way of thinking that so inspires you to work so hard and, and to love it so much? Well, um, that's a pretty complicated question, uh, true, but true. I'll try and, uh, I'll try and boil it down. Um, well, first of all, you know, my my kind of uh, entry into the labor movement uh, came about quite naturally as growing up as a working class kid in East Vancouver. And, um, you know, my family was modest means. My father was a warehouse worker. My mother was a janitor. Um, you know, we were a working class family. And um, growing up in East Vancouver, um, you know, uh, notions of class uh, nobody had to teach me to be class conscious. We all knew that we were working class. Um, and I knew it. My neighbors knew it. My friends knew it. Um, and uh, so in the, you know, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, you know, in the context of the civil rights movement in the United States and the war in Vietnam and just the hurly burly of British Columbia, it, you know, a certain level of politicalization came rather easily, and it led me directly to the labor movement. Um, uh, my father was a shop steward in his union. Um, there was a huge strike in uh, st struggle in um, 1983 in British Columbia. It was called the Solidarity Movement. I don't know if you guys are familiar yeah, with that. that. It was kind yeah, of a yeah. watershed event. Well, my dad was a picket captain, just, you know, kind of one of the troops and so on. So, um, and as I became engaged with the labor movement and learned more about it, I started to attend meetings of the local labor council, which met on Commercial Drive, just up the street from where I lived. And I was just fascinated. I would sit in the back and listen to the speeches of these working class intellectuals, uh, people who had almost no for post-secondary formal education, but who were better read than anybody I'd ever met in in any in school or elsewhere, and incredible orators who would combine theory, philosophy, history, um, uh, and practice in a way that inspired people, and they would do it on the, you know, on on the floor of union meetings that I would just sit in the back and listen to. So, you know, I became, I, I came to have a pretty profound respect for, um, you know, to, for what working people are capable of. I learned early that, um, that, you know, formal education is no measure of people's ability. It's one measure, but it's no, it's, it's no ultimate measure of people's ability. Um, and, um, and, and basically um, the, you know, when you look at Canadian society, there is no other social organization comparable to the labor movement in terms no. of its size, its scope, its uh, its role as a social organization. When you look at a big union in Canada today and think about what it does for its members, um, it not, of course, it negotiates collective agreements and sets the terms and conditions for people at work. It most likely it also provides health and safety services. Uh, 
uh, to members, everything from ergonomics to um, you know to uh, um, you know to toxic substances, you know the whole gamut of health and safety things the union does. The union provides legal services to its members. Uh, the union is trade unions are the largest adult educators in Canada. Yes, by far, absolutely, yes, yes. By far, by far, tens of thousands of people go and 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 so there are, um, you know, expert people with a over with a you know 150 year tradition of doing adult education. Um, um, you, modern large modern unions have human rights departments. Um, in my union, there are 15. Um, there are um, there are five standing committees in each region that are for specifically for equity groups. So the union by its constitution always has a women's committee, an LGBTQ committee, a youth committee, a committee for disabled workers, a, you know, um, uh, and so on. Uh, and a workers of color uh, committees plus, you know, all of, so it, when you just look at the scope and size of all of this, oh, I, I'm leaving out pensions, benefits. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, now these are these are all things that if you were a, um, uh, you know, if you were a, um, kind of a professional person or a businessman, you would uh, you you would go out into the marketplace and purchase all of these uh, services and you know as you need them. Uh, trade unions provide them, um, you know, um, for their members um, in a large way in Canada. And um, just try and think of our country with, uh, you know, with without um, a labor movement that provides all of these services to people. Empowering, I would say, empowering services that give workers strength and confidence to be able to do what they otherwise would not be able to do, which is to match power with truth and to negotiate on equal terms. Um, and um, so, yes, yeah, so the labor movement is, um, is uh, quite unique in that regard. Um, and there's one other thing I should mention, which you know gripped me as a young man and which continues to motivate me more than ever today. And that is that you cannot disconnect uh, trade unions in Canada today although many people have tried to do this, but you cannot disconnect trade unions from a larger transformational notion of, of uh, social change. Um, you know, the first unions were, um, you know, came out of bitter, you know, very oppressive, exploitative conditions. And the, from the very first day that there was a union, there was a vision of a new kind of, of, of a better world, of a more fair world. Um, a better life. Uh, for, for individuals, right? A better life for individuals, but more than just a better life for individuals, the, the kind of the, the understanding that in order to achieve that, that better life, um, society has to change. Right. It right. Has to change in structural ways. Right. So, um, you know, and, and so from the very beginning, um, um, trade unions were, had a certain anti-capitalist, um, yeah. you know, kind of a position. And as capitalism was modified by the work of trade unions over the years, that, you know, kind of relationship has evolved. But still today, to, until today, you know, we'd look forward to a, a more democratic society in, still in which uh, class inequities are reduced and eliminated. 
And the trade union movement remains the, the fundamental social organization in Canada and globally that, that um, you know, uh, providing the social base for that kind of political movement. Yeah, I think it's fair to argue that the union movement is is what gave Canada uh, single payer health care too, right? Our, our universal health care system came out of that kind of, like you said, change, make society better, structural change, which is kind of born in that union movement. Would you agree? Uh, absolutely. Most things that are legislated were fought for at bargaining tables for years and years long before they became socially legislated for all people. So um, whether you're talking about, about health care benefits or maternity, paternity leaves or pensions, uh, all of these things that eventually became socialized for all people as they should be. Uh, you know, have their roots in um, in working people coming together and demanding these things as a as a, as a right and as a benefit of their employment, because of course you know all of these it's, uh, you know employment security was something that you know that wealthy classes and you know and employers always had they had employment security workers did not so they of course in their workplace life and their struggles they demanded it and eventually um, it became legislated and socialized for all people so a lot of people who are listening probably don't know the history of the of the labor movement in canada or kind of like an overarching idea of kind of how it's developed who some of the main you know figureheads are so would you mind giving us a little bit of a background on how it how it's developed how and you being a part of it for the, so much of that time watching it what was that like just kind of give us the story of the labor movement in Canada specifically Canada again um, a bit of a tall order to try <laughs> yeah, and uh, absolutely and uh, and boil down to a few words but let me give I'll, I'll give it a whirl here so um, and just just um, interrupt me if I get too wonkish oh, here. Uh, oh, don't worry. We, we, no, we love the wonkish. We love the the passion about these things. <laughs> we want people to get into what the things they love. <laughs> so um, you know, the trade union movement in Canada is you know is you know give or take a, a few decades, about two hundred years old. It um, you know it goes back to the in, into the middle of the nineteenth century, um, and the first unions in Canada. Were um, were outgrowths of guilds, European guilds, and, you know. So it was at the very, you know, capitalism was still, and the industrial revolution was just, you know, was still very much underway. We already had unions in Canada, but they were very craft oriented, very craft oriented. So the first union members had um, had uh, usually were tradespeople, um, and they were shoemakers, they were leather workers, they were. Um, although we even back in at the very beginning, there were, you know, uh, forestry workers and others who started to uh, organize unions. Um, a lot of their demands uh, were over um, were over hours of work. Um, and so, you know, the first strike for an eight hour day was in the 1870s, um, you know, uh, and um, um the uh, in the 1880s, we you know you had the famous Haymarket massacre in Chicago, which was over the strike for the eight-hour day, and uh, that gave rise to demonstrations around the world 
uh, which launched May Day as the day of international for International Workers' Day as May Day, May 1st. Again, linking it to Labour's more radical roots, the call for making May Day uh, that you know this this call to action on May the first came out from the International Working Men's Association in London, England, in response to the events in Chicago, and the head of that organization was a, a you know a bearded guy called Karl Marx. Right, uh, right, right. <laughs> people think of him as a just as somebody you know who who wrote books. Uh, and he did uh, did that, but he actually was the was the head of the first uh, global uh, labor movement um, uh, at that time. So, um, following the um, now the early days of the trade union movement in Canada, almost all our unions were American unions. Right, right. Uh, um, they were almost all American, so they were kind of branch plants of American unions, um, and uh, there was always this tension between, you know, uh, you know, as Canadian labor began to form and its own um, bodies, you know, uh, what, uh, how it would organize independently, and at the same time keeping solidarity with uh, workers across the border. So, in the early nineteen, in the early twentieth century was perhaps one of the most radical eras of labor history. So in the United States, again, you had the the, uh, International Working Men's Men's Association, the IWW, uh, International Workers of the World, which had been organizing in Canada. And um, it gave rise to a, a kind of a type of trade unionism known as syndicalism. Um, uh, this wonky word, syndicalism, meaning that people th- saw the union as itself as a way to uh, change society, as a substitute, in fact, for politics, for political parties. Right. right yeah. Um, so the IW and so the IWW became in Canada took on a eventually took on a different form called the One Big Union. Oh, the one interesting. Big okay. Union. And so this was very radical in this day because you were taking the craft unions. Workers of the day said, you know, what is this that we're all joining unions that are based on you're a, I'm a shoemaker and you're a leather worker and this guy over here is a, is a carpenter and we're all in separate unions. Um, uh, we're all being, you know, uh, screwed over uh, collectively in this society. Why don't we form one big union to fight for a whole, you know, for a, a, a different type of a union? A different type of uh, of society, I should say, uh, and so it was trying to go from craft unionism all the way to uh, kind of a class unionism, if you if, if I could use that term from a so and in that sense, it was very much before its time. It was, but uh, it did take over Western Canada, um, and yeah, absolutely. In, in, and by about 1919, the uh, one big union had uh, about 35,000 members in Western Canada, which, you know, Canada was a much smaller, had a much smaller population. And this was a very large, um, uh, a very, very significant um, uh, level of union density. And um, of course, the one big union was very much involved in the Winnipeg general strike of 1919. Very radical era. And uh, again, workers coming back from World War One, 
mm-hmm. which was, mm-hmm. let's just say, World War One, when they people came back. A lot of people were saying, well, we went to fight for king and country. But what was that really about? You know, World War One was the first war of uh, of the first war in human history where there was, re, you know, kind of uh, uh, large numbers of deaths of, of civilians, not yeah. just combatants. It was the first, you know, it marked a turning point in human conflict. And really the, you know, it was for king and country, but it was really about colonialism, about redividing the world into colonies. A lot of workers came back and said, well, we went to that. We saw a lot of our people get, um, you know, we saw a lot the a lot of our brothers fall. Uh, what's in it for us? And the workers, the soldiers that came back from the First World War were quite rat became quite radicalized. Uh, understandably, considering the the conditions that they were under over there too, like they they were treated. It was like like you said, the, like the working conditions even were just as a soldier were horrendous. Exactly. So it wasn't only then a few years later, um, the but the the syndicalists of the early nineteen of the nineteen twenties, they went up by in um, uh, by nineteen twenty there was about thirty five thousand members in the one big union, but by nineteen twenty six or twenty seven they were reduced to about four or five thousand people, mostly in Winnipeg. What happened to them? Um, this is an interesting historic. Two things happened to that early movement. Uh, one thing was that the first of all, the international unions, the American unions, uh, fought back, and using their um, their resources and their connections with uh, uh, with uh, governments of the day, um, and joined kind of in the um, campaigns against the. Uh, against sort of the radicals, and they suppressed it. Another thing that happened, though, was that there was a decision made um, in um, uh, in Moscow at the Red International Labor Unions to actually t- telling the left-wingers, the radicals, the organizers, to leave the one big union and to go and rejoin the American unions because that's in oh, order to... Oh, because they needed to be in those organizations to push things forward. <laughs> Yes, that's right. So it was one of the first times that, you know, a problem of the Canadian labor movement where decisions were made on our behalf by people who knew better somewhere else. Right. Let's right. just put it that way. Um, so now then in the 19, so it was only a few years. And then we had that we were, you know, a few years later, it was less than a decade later, we were found Canada found itself in the depths of the depression. Mm-hmm. And um, the American unions, uh, you know, really didn't know what to do during the Depression. And um, um, uh, and there was almost no um, kind of worker resistance for the first few years. Uh, But people did start to organize again. And this was likely the heyday of the communist influence in uh, the Canadian labor movement. And they started to organize and carry on strikes that would um, uh, that into the point where most of the strikes by 1933, 1934, 35 were being conducted by a group called the Workers Unity League, which again, sort of similar to the um, one big union by about 1935, 36 had about 35,000 members, mostly in Western Canada. Um, they also organized the unemployed. 
And people have heard of the onto Ottawa Trek when they all got on, um, uh, you know, all the, the unemployed uh, and homeless of the day, you know, jumped onto rail cars and they got as far as Regina when the RCMP met them. And um, and um, there was the Regina riots and massacre. And unfortunately, uh, as is often the case in those early struggles, you know, shots were fired, workers um, sacrificed. Um, so uh, um, uh, as it first, as the Second World War approached, once again, geo, global geopolitics affecting the development of the Canadian labor movement. What there was a second decision made about the Canadian labor movement, once again, not made in this country. And this was when the decision was made by now the uh, Communist International decided that the um, called for the policy that was called the policy of the United Front. And it was that in order to fight fascism, to fight Hitler, um, that radical union members and uh, more reformist and moderate union members had to come together and form a united front. And so, you know, there was examples of that all over the world. In Spain, you had the popular unity government that was... Uh, until it fell victim to the Spanish, uh, to the Franco, yeah. um, uh, war, to the fascists, uh, ultimately defeated it. But the, the popular unity government was a government of communists, socialists, Democrats generally. This kind of popular front approach in Canada meant that the Workers' Unity League um, voluntarily disbanded. And uh, once again, for a second time, um, they decided to all go back and join the American unions again, and they did so. Um, and uh, many of them, of those same workers, went and fought in Spain mm -hmm. uh, as volunteers, and they also, of course, and became part of Canada's military effort. Uh, and du during the war, um, that radical back, you know, kind of component of labor organizers then became involved in the kind of the second kind of big um, era of trade unionism in Canada going from craft unionism into industrial unionism. Right, right. So by now, the, the war economy um, started to produce mass production industries, automobiles, uh, steel, uh, and so on. And uh, so unions began to organize not on a craft basis, but on a industrial basis. Okay, now these organizers, these radical organizers that I've mentioned, uh, of course, um, they didn't go away. They just left their kind of radical organization, went back into, and they back into the mainstream unions, and they became critical organizers in that new wave of organizing. Uh, once again, it came, it was imported in part from the United States. There was an organization called the Congress of Industrial Organizing, the CIO. Which came, which started in the United States and came to Canada, and um, during that era, um, you know, we had huge, um, uh, quite a few large struggles, especially in the automobile industry in Southern Ontario, fighting for union recognition on an industrial basis. And um, uh, just at the end of the war, um, just at the end of the war, the um, there was a famous sit-down strike uh, in Windsor um, at the Ford plant. 
And that uh, sit-down strike was for union recognition. And that gave rise to, um, to a historic decision by the federal government to bring into being the basis of Canadian labor law today. It was called Privy Council Order 1007. And that was soon after uh, reflected as well in a legal decision by a judge named Ivan Rand, which is called the Rand Formula. And that's and, and it's from that point in time where we have the system that we have today, where if unions have workers have a legal right uh, and if uh, to uh, to join a union. And if 50 percent of the um, of the or if the, a majority of workers in any workplace designated workplace decide to join the union, the union becomes a certified bargaining agent on behalf of all of the employees there. And what the RAND formula said is that even if you didn't join the union, because you were the beneficiary of that, of, of what the union was going to provide for you, your wages, your working you conditions. Had to have, they, you had to pay your dues or whatever. You had to pay your dues, and the union had a fiduciary responsibility to represent you whether you joined or not. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay, so, this was, so this was the deal that was made um, in Canada. Um, it was a different deal made slightly from the United States, which never had a RAND, never had a RAND formula, not to this right. day, it still doesn't. Um, but in the United States, whereas uh, in, um, unions uh, got that right to form a union and to be certified as a bargaining agent, they, um, if they had a dispute, uh, they could still you know, resort to a strike. Uh, to resolve their disputes. In Canada, part of the deal was uh, in exchange, it wasn't put so explicitly, but sort of part of the deal with the RAND formula was that everybody had to pay dues. Um, there was no strike activity was uh, was allowed while a contract was in place. Oh, and interesting. Yeah, so that which is uh, which is a very different, uh, uh, very different from the American system. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so you know, for those that wanted it, it brought a certain level of labor peace. It meant that workers had the right to organize. A contract was signed, and then there was a level of labor peace. And that for disputes with, between that period, they would go to an arbitration system. Um, which grew up kind of as a parallel part of the whole labor law system, which, you know, today, uh, 70, 80 years later, is a complicated network of, of thousands of precedents and um, uh, arbit arbitral practices and procedures and so on. Um, um, and uh, it's a great debate about whether or not workers have come out better in this very legalized Technical system. system, right, right. Um, what, what would your What would your opinion on that be? Uh, it's it's a bit of I, I'm I'm I have a foot in both camps. I think that the um, that it's a you know I I don't although I in favor of uh, of a militant labor movement that's always taking on the bigger fights. That doesn't mean that we have to you know take everybody out on the street every time um something right, relatively right. small happens so i i i appreciate the you know the technical arbitral system but i um but i'm always concerned that 
it takes over the life of the union and too much of the work of the union gets turned over to lawyers and other technical experts when really the best way to solve a problem is for a group of workers to go and knock on the boss's door and say, you've got a problem, fix it or else. Right, right, right. So so the Rand Act was kind of almost a, a turning point in Canada where we got our own system. Like from what I, from what I'm hearing from what you've told us it was very much a, we were basically a plant economy for the American unions and and then we were trying to form our own thing but once we had a legal structure that probably took us in a different direction as unions than they did in the states would you say or Absolutely. And so, you know, so as I mentioned, so this all took place within the context of the war. Um, And um, so the big struggles during the war, again, was still over the hours of work. So in 1948, for example, there um, we it was the kind of the critical turning point when most workers in Canada got an eight-hour day, the 40-hour week. You know, the old saying that, you know, unions, the groups that get the, the group that gave you the weekend. Right. <laughs> um, I haven't I haven't heard that but I like it. <laughs> uh, it's 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 literally true. Yeah, it's literally right. True. Yeah, it's literally true. So uh so in uh, 1948 there were three um critical um uh strikes uh that took place um over the 8-hour day and they were coordinated by once again by the more radical uh and kind of uh more radical sort of socialist section of the labor movement, but it was all of the loggers in British Columbia. Right. The seamen on the Great Lakes in a group called the Canadian Seamen's Union. That's another story, a tragic story, but, and the garment workers in Quebec and Toronto. Okay. All of these three sections of the economy decided to strike in 1948 for the eight hour day. The loggers won it, then the seamen won it, then the garment workers got it, and basically it was a done deal. After that, it's then swept through the uh, swept through the economy. But it's an it's an illustrative point because nobody should think that we got these things just because we were um, just because it made sense, right? Or, or it was inevitable. Uh, it took work and effort and like organizing. It took a, it took a fight. Yeah, it right. took a fight. It took it took concerted action and a fight by people who by by uh, by leaders who understood the nature of uh, you know of 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 class relations, and you know as Frederick Douglass famously said, uh, you know power never seeds anything without a demand. Right. Right. Um, you know. So, and that was certainly the case in Canada. So. Um, so industrial unionism then, um, you know, the heyday of industrial unionism was basically from 1955 to 1975. There was um, um, there, uh, the Canadian that was during that year in some parts of Canada, union density climbed to almost 50% of the workforce. Wow. Um, this was the, you know, the post-war period of expansionism where, where um, um the uh, the economy was growing, union demands were were um, uh, were met, and it was in this era that you know people his, classically talk about the creation of the so-called middle class. Right, uh, right. It's it's a term that I don't like because they were always working class and still right. are. Right, right, because they're working all the time. <laughs> 
um, but they did achieve higher incomes and that and that inequality class inequality was reduced to historic lows during this period of time um, industri and uh, industrial unionism grew in in British Columbia, Quebec, uh, in particular in those places, Newfoundland, uh, the um, uh, union density uh, was around 50% of all workers. Um, and uh, the other thing that took place in this period, particularly during the 1960s and 1970s, is when most of the big public sector unions formed in Canada. Okay. Right. Yes. Um, and so start with uh, hospital workers, municipal workers, federal government workers. It was during this period of time that that these workers uh, organized as well. And that was a huge change because, um, you know, that um, uh, because when those workers decided to fight for union uh, recognition, the governments of the day said the way we're going to handle this is we don't want, we can't deal with like 40 unions. No, in right, the hospital. right, right. <laughs> we can't deal with this. So what we're going to do is we're going to legislate one bargaining unit for everybody in the, in the healthcare sector. Or, or actually, it was two or three bargaining units, one for nurses, one for the health professionals, and one for everybody else. So we're going to legislate these things. Or in the municipalities, they said we're going to have one bargaining unit for all of the civic workers. Right. Maybe another one for some white-collar workers who are off by themselves, and so on. Uh, and the, likewise in the federal government, which actually the federal government had more unions according to different professional categories, and they had more, you know, so they had a union for customs, a union right. for... Yeah, um, yeah white collar workers, a union for researchers and professionals and so on. But the overall impact was that basically the public sector became unionized um, almost, uh, you know, overwhelmingly to the point where today, 75% um, of the public sector in Canada is organized. People belong to unions. It's never reached 100%. But, um, but that part that is not unionized really was the sectors of the public, the public sector uh, areas where they would contract out government work to right. basically to service organizations and so on because it was cheaper. Um, and so from then until today, in the public sector, a big part of the you know, uh, union strategy is to fill in that gap. Uh, instead of having taking uh, you know work of the important work that's done by uh, public public sector workers in, in under a union contract and given to uh, a social service agency that lives on grants mm -hmm. and pays mm -hmm. people you know half the wages right um, so right. that's always been the struggles to overcome that so um and that sort of now the um the kind of the, the the growth and expansion of industrial unionism through um, and uh, through the 1960s and 1970s, of course, of course, came to a crashing end around 1980, um, when, frankly, uh, ruling elites in um, North America, in Europe, Ronald, famously Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher. Um, you know, supported by an ideological, a new ideological view that 
that, um, you know, things were just too, not unequal enough. Things were just too equal. Uh, there was just too much democracy. Right, right, uh, right. Um, and that they were going to fix this. And so they did, you know, and um, the so-called Washington consensus was developed of free trade deregulation um, and union busting. Famously, Ronald Reagan decided to dissolve, uh, legislatively dissolve the air traffic controllers in the United States. Um, um, Margaret Thatcher went after and with a big effort to destroy the coal miners union in Great Britain. And there was a big pushback. Um, uh, to, and it was at that you can actually mark the rise of inequality as we know it today from that era, from right around 1980, where inequality has grown uh, obscenely um, ever since that time, and unions have generally been in decline. Okay, uh, why do you why do you think that? Uh, obviously, there's a big pushback, and I completely agree. Why do you think the decline happened? Is there other reasons, or is it because of this pushback? Do you think? Yes. Well, the overall reason is organized greed. Right, right, right. Organized greed and a new ideology of capitalism, which we sometimes call neoliberalism, which is that greed is good. Right, right. right? You know, greed is good. I mean, famously, Milton Friedman and others and the Chicago School of Economics, they actually argued and trained a whole generation of kind of um, MBA graduates that greed is good. That the best decisions are made in, you know, in, in, in the best decisions, social decisions are made by people seeking their maximum self-advantage. Right. And that somehow in this great wash of all of that, um, there, you know, the efficiencies would be created and wealth would be created and it would trickle down uh, to the people at the bottom. Right. Right. It was all a hoax. Uh, resulting in you know in, in you know in this obscene inequalities we have today, and the fact that uh, in the United States today it's better in Canada, but in the United States today, the real purchasing power, the real income of the average worker in the United States today is about what it was in about 1975 or 1976. Yeah, that's something I've always thought was completely absurd. To be honest, oh. I, it doesn't make any sense to me at all how. Wages have stagnated for so long. Well, because yes, wages have stagnated for so long, and so uh, and they stagnated in so long because while this these economic policies were implemented, that you know they were they were complemented by uh, legislation, uh, you know, direct anti labor legislation. So it became harder and harder to organize a union in the United States. You had right to work laws, which outlawed what we would call in Canada union shops, made them illegal, uh, kind of a right-wing libertarianism um, on steroids, finding its way into the application of labor law. In Canada, it took a different expression. We never really had right-to-work legislation, but we did have um, sort of, for example, in British Columbia, the governments in the 1980s legislated non-union they basically broke up the, you know, the organized construction industry, and created huge industrial projects, in which, uh, which, uh, you know, gave the 
contracts to uh, uh, to non-union uh, contractors, many of them imported from the United States and uh, Korea and places like that, because we didn't have a lot of non-union contractors in British Columbia capable right, of doing that. Right, right. But it was social engineering on a wide scale. They determined to do this. Why? Because they thought construction workers were too powerful, earned too much money, frankly, and they wanted cheaper construction. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, and there were many other, uh, you know, the right to strike became more and more constrained um, uh, uh, and so on. And it was a, you know, uh, the, in the public sector, uh, there was strike breaking against postal workers, famously, um, you know, a number of labor leaders in Quebec, Jean-Claude Perrault, the leader of the labor of the postal workers, they all went to jail. Right. Um, right. As strikes were broken and legislated. Okay. So all of this coercion, you know, in com- combination with the new economic policies, brought about and uh, brought about a decline in in um, um, in the labor movement. Fundamentally, the tactic was, and it was successful. Put the fear of God into workers, that if they fought for better wages, more security, they would have less job security. They would lose their jobs. Right, right. Uh, and you also, of course, had capital flight in order to underscore this with people, you know, the free trade agreement, of course, with the United States, although it brought some benefits, uh, I acknowledge there were some benefits from, uh, from, from trade, some new sectors opened up, you know, Canada lost, um, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of half a million uh, manufacturing jobs. Which went, which was simple capital flight going to low wage jurisdictions. Right. Yeah. Uh, something that everybody now is trying to figure out how we can reverse. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You know. Yep. So, so this was the case, and so um, now there's one other part. I'm sorry, this has taken a long no, time. No, no, this is awesome. This is, this is great. Okay, so now let's now fast forward into the 21st century. Okay, so into the 21st century, we have a. Um, you have a new situation where the um, um, where the labor movement is much weakened. Uh, trade union density uh, overall has declined um, in the United States down to about ten percent, twelve percent of all workers, with uh, five six percent of um, private sector workers organized, maybe. 20% of public sector workers organized. In Canada, uh, overall tr- overall dense union density has remained about 29%, but that's because uh, 70 to 75% of public sector right. workers yes. remain in unions. Private sector density in Canada has dropped to about 18 or 19%. In Ontario, it's 14%. Um, in British Columbia, it would be about the same, 14, 15%, and so on. Which means that 85% of, um, uh, roughly, of um, of workers do not have unions. They supposedly have a legal right to join a union, but practically speaking, um, they're not they really don't. involved in it. Yeah, yeah, they don't. Um, and there also came about. Uh, there became new forms of management organization um, uh, in order to kind of. S- you know, cement this relationship and to just kind of squeeze the last drop of blood out of the stone. Um, 
Uh, and um, so there's a term for it. Um, it's called the fractured workplace. Okay. Um, and so you have a workplace, think of a big box store. Okay. Mm. Just in time supply. Everything is contracted out. Right. Okay? Right. Okay. Everything is contracted out just in time suppliers. Um, so you, um, uh, it's difficult to know who, where, where is the decision made that sets the terms for the terms of, of, uh, of work that sets the wages that's going to be paid, the hours of work, the other general conditions. Um, and, um, is it the, uh, is it the manager in the store? Is it the purchaser of the, that sets the supply chain? Uh, or is it the contractors that come in, you know, with a, um, you know, it, it, doing various services of maintenance or providing particular services or goods? So, in other words, the nature of work was reorganized. Right. Okay. Um, and to divide workers and production up into smaller groups of people. So in today, in Canada, um, about 89% of all workplaces have 19 or fewer employees. Mm -hmm. Now, that's, they're not, that's not of all workers. They make up about, oh, still only about 35 to 40% of the entire workforce. So 60% of workers are in bigger workplaces, but the great majority of workplaces right, are, are small. Are, are very, very small. Okay. So does that mean that they have no, um, <clears throat> that there are no rights as is? In fact, many of those small workplaces are, are extremely exploitative. Sometimes they're, you know, and um, uh, sometimes they can be, you know, kind of uh, little families that operate as a group, and it's all, you know, um, you know, uh, kumbaya uh, between yeah, everybody. Right, but, right. but you know, um, I think we all know somebody that works in a small workplace that it's not like it's not that way at all. Mm -hmm. But given the nature, the structure, and the history of where we come from from in the era of industrial unions. Those places are virtually unorganizable given the current model of trade unionism that we have today. Virtually so, unorganizable. So what what do you think? Um, we have to end here in about 10 minutes, but what do you think the future of, of the trade union is that or, or unions in general, given this fractured world that's been created? Would you and it sounds like and I, I it seems perfectly rational to me that you think this came from this legalization of the whole process, this, this over bureaucrat, making it overly bureaucratic. No, that, that contributed, but no, I would say I wouldn't put it to that. I would put it to a kind of a development of capitalism, which, you know, put it this way in, in the capitalist society. And this is the sort of my ideological bent. Right. There's only one way really to make a lot of money. Okay, people think they're making, you know, and the, and the only way you can make a lot of money in capitalism is that you hire workers and you, frankly, pay them less. Right. You know, and, and if you're investing in the stock market and getting a money there, that's really just redistribution of income that's already made from what from takes place in production. Right. So that this process is inevitable. It's always going on. It's why we always need a labor movement. So. 
Um, so what's the future of labor? Well, this takes me back to the story I started to talk to you about with the syndicalists in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. um, we've gone through a period of unionism from craft unionism into uh, uh, industrial unionism. And today uh, you have a majority of the working class. A majority of the working class are in small workplaces and in franchise operations working for uh, uh, various forms of self-employment, um, um, which is just another form of, of employment these days. Uh, maybe you guys, yourselves, you know, yeah, you're yeah, gig, we're, yeah, we're gig workers, yeah. you're gig workers, you're <laughs> yep. still workers, yeah. you're still <laughs> yeah. workers. Um, and so uh, maybe those syndicalists in the 1920s who, you know, organized the Winnipeg general strike, they were before their time. But I would say that in order for the labor movement's future, I would argue we need to um, uh, we need to go evolve to the next stage, which would be a class unionism. OK, so this would be, for example, what I devoted the last part of my career to in the uh, with the creation of Unifor, Canada's largest private sector union. Um, it was a merger of uh, wasn't really a merger. It was a creation of a new union. A brand, the first major new union in Canada in uh, over half a century. And, uh, and this union, though, although it was, it was a, gr a group of industrial unions that came together to make it, couldn't be called an industrial union because it has members in over 20 economic sectors. Right. So, yeah, it's not industry-specific at all. It's not industry-specific at all. No. And, in fact, um, you guys can join. Right, um, right. We have a we have a freelance union, uh, a freelance local, which is part of the uh, part of the uh, of the union structure. Um, but the idea is, it's called you know the the slogan is a union for everyone. And now, unfortunately, most of the American unions in, that remain in Canada today um, uh, have no interest in this type of unionism. I call them legacy unions, mm. legacy unions. And a lot, many of the Canadian unions as well, uh, you know, it, they still haven't yet felt the crisis bite hard enough because Frank, the dues paying members of the shrinking section of the organized working class that they represent can still keep the lights on. Right. Right. But it's just the maintaining the status quo. They're not making gains anymore. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, well, no, and and they can they can make gains in this contract or that contract. But the point is, they're taking care of the members as they should. But that the group of members that they're taking care of are every year a little smaller per percentage of the whole working class. Mm. And what we need to do. You know, if we want to see the resurgence of the middle class that everybody says that they want, that, that we want to see um, working people stand together in much greater numbers and take much more decisive actions in order to contract to counteract inequality in all its forms. If we want to see the labor movement once again become a social movement for uh, for progressive change rather than an interest group helping a small group of craft workers, you know, in some section of the mm. economy. If we want to do these things, labor has to embrace a class unionism where we say our unions are for everybody. Right. And we fight, we fight for everybody, whether you belong to the union or not, 
we are your representative and we will help empower you through our organizing, our education, our political action, uh, and our struggles um, to, uh, to fight for a greater equality in a fairer world. So, um, you know, history does repeat itself. <laughs> right. Um, or or and, at least it uh, rhymes, right? At least it rhymes. <laughs> at, least it, at least it rhymes. And we can learn a lot from our history. I'm very great. I'm very grateful for this. This has been, I don't know, I'm sure Zach feels the same way. This has been massively educational for me. Um, I, I uh, actually did some of my master's on how wealth inequality was going to result in the collapse of of our economies. Um, now I, I'm 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 not. I think we're ideologically different, but I could, But the level of inequality is something that deeply bothers me as well. Uh, there's no reason that wealth should be so concentrated in such a small number of people. And I grew up very working class myself. I liked what you said. We're all workers. Um, and we need to we need to remember that the the labor movement has played this such a significant role. I, I mean, giving us the weekend that's such a good way of putting it, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm just really grateful that you came on here, and and I feel very much more enlightened by by your wisdom, to be honest, on this stuff. So thank you. Well, great, and I look forward to whatever, however you wherever you take this from uh, from here. I look forward to the feedback. And, yeah, um, yeah. and, um, maybe I'll just tell people you asked for my, uh, for my social media contacts Yes. Uh, on, um, uh, on Twitter, F Wilson two, F Wilson two is my Twitter, uh, handle. People can find me there. I'm on, uh, I'm on Facebook at J E Fred, uh, Wilson. And, uh, I did write a book that, um, that, uh, you know, uh, hopefully some of your listeners will uh, will find entertaining. It's called A New Kind of Union. Oh. A New Kind of Union. And uh, a lot of what I've been talking about is captured there. It's a it's a it's the story of how Unifor was founded, why it was founded and uh, where the labor movement has come from and where it's going. It was published by James Lorimer and Company in 2019. A New Kind of Union. A New Kind of Union by Fred Wilson, people. If you want to better understand the movement and what uh, and this, this evolution that has happened in the Canadian labor movement, then you should definitely pick up that book. Please do. It's available at Chapters, Indigo, or online from Lorimer. Perfect. And uh, you can uh, find me uh, pretty easily um, by, you know, through, uh, through Unifor. Just look on the web. And uh, if anybody out there um, wants to talk more about this, um, uh, get in touch with me and I'll be glad to carry on the conversation. Fred, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The CAD Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.